Hello and welcome to the This Is So Exhausting podcast, where we offer an insight, intimate insight, I should say, from some of the industry's leading experts and see how they see the future of the emissions industry developing. I am Tim Chain. And I am George Ade Onojobi. And today we have the privilege of having Tui Johansson join us on the pod today. Uh, just by way of introduction, um, Tui, Dr. Johansson, is Head of Maritime Application and Viability at the new Mask McKinney Muller Centre for Zero Carbon Shipping. But that's not where I met Tui. Uh, his career started initially at uh, Technical University of Denmark, where he was a, a pr- Associate Professor of Chemical Engineering. Um, and in 2005, he co-founded Aminex an after-treatment technology company, and he then served as the CTO in this cleantech spin-out during the development and launch of this of some technologies that Aminex was offering to do with NOx reduction uh, technologies. Then in 2019, he made the, tr- uh, the transition across from automotive to the shipping sector, where he started at AP Muller-Mosk, where he's involved in uh, a new center that he's going to tell, tell us about later. So, Tui, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Tim and George. Uh, good to meet you. All well. Looking forward. We're looking forward to this discussion because, true, we've we've known you for quite a long time. So uh, it's great to have you on the podcast. Now, I've been getting a lot of messages about how great and how fun the this is so exhausting segment is. So, Chewy, no pressure. Um, <laughs> what is your this is so exhausting uh, story? Well, it, uh, it it could be uh, it could be a very early introduction to something that might have uh, had an influence to my career when I was uh, I grew up on a farm, uh, and when I was uh, something around four or five years old, you know, the, the conventional way of doing fertilizing in those days was uh, through anhydrous ammonia being uh, delivered through tractors on on the fields and. Uh, to make sure that I understood what was involved with uh, dealing with ammonia, my father pulled me by the arm and, and pulled me close to where the tractor had been passing by to get kind of this odor of ammonia when, when it had been passing by. So uh, I got that uh, whiff of ammonia when I was, was old, oh, sorry, when I was young. And, uh, uh, you know, you need to respect the nice molecule uh, due to its uh, its nature. So. Uh, Maybe that kind of early uh, early introduction played in let's call it an exhaustive uh, impact on uh, on how my career turned out. <laughs> That's quite an extreme uh, teaching method by your, by your dad. To you never have known that that would become the theme of your career, bizarrely. <laughs> well, I never I never looked back when I was in seventh grade. I wanted to become a chemical engineer and then went straight for it. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, ammonia is just truly been a part of your life for a very long time a very uh long long lasting marriage you could say it's definitely the strand that runs through 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 your entire <laughs> life we more than we'd ever realized <laughs> right george i'm going to put you on the spot first this time what oh, is your this is so exhausting segment story and it doesn't need to be about ammonia but maybe it could be <laughs> um let me think uh yeah not this time maybe next week it could be about ammonia but for, for this 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 week um what is exhausting me is cookies um cookies are really getting on my yeah (laughs) yeah i mean sorry just just to clarify as a disclaimer aisha my wife if you're listening um 
it is not the lovely cookies you make. They're fantastic. Please continue to make them because myself and my stomach really enjoy it, um, and especially cookie dough and ice cream. That is awesome. Uh, what I'm what I'm referring to when I say cookies uh, are the you know the cookie the pop ups you get when you go on a website. Any website. Every day I go on a website, new or old. You get asked, "Oh, can I have? Oh, you, would you, what are your yeah? What are your permissions on? Uh, can we accept this? Or can you adjust the settings on? Can you allow us to share your data with? It is so annoying every day. If it's not one thing, it's another. And if it's not it's cookies, tedious. it's it's adverts popping up on on YouTube or and and then you know, for example, if I'm looking for for flights now, um which some of us are, um, you accept or decline as much as you can on the cookies. And of course, they're tracking you to see how many times you use the website. The more times you use the website, this is why I try and use a VPN when I'm looking for flights. Short tip there. Um, the next time and you use the same website to search, they may or may not increase the price, which is really annoying. So that what's annoying me is cookies. With cookies that are tracking you you know your your movements on the internet um and you know if you search on amazon and you you purchase something or you're about to purchase something but you decide not to you get an email five minutes later are you sure you don't want to buy this toaster um so so yeah that's that's annoying me at the moment sorry it's a long that one that's very annoying yeah, yeah, yeah and the other the other related annoying thing that happens is you might search for something uh something unusual as you say, you start getting emails and reminders, but sometimes you actually, when you buy that item, you carry on getting the reminders, and it's like I don't need, yeah. I don't need to know this anymore. I've got one. I only need one of these things in my life. I don't need to buy another one. Indeed, it's quite weird. It, this technology world is really weird. The other day, I, I mentioned something very random, like um, I think it was something to do with, um, like motivational books. I said, I mentioned it to my wife. And then the next day, there was a advert on the side of a browser that mentioned motivational books. Now, I don't know who's listening out there, um, <laughs> but, but it's, yeah, it's really weird. Really weird. But yeah, Tim, um, sorry, that was a very emotional one for me. As you can tell, it's it's quite personal. Um, but but what's, what's yours? Is yours about ammonia? Is it really annoying? for you too what's your story this week as, <laughs> yeah good as, as annoying as ammonia could be my, mine's not not actually about ammonia today uh my my uh, this is an exhausting story is i think something that people will find familiar it's just packaging and i know this is a common theme the amount of packaging that comes through the door uh is uh, it's it's it is obviously very tiring and 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 even exhausting but i wanted to make a particular point about packaging because i think we all we all feel that that the, the, there's too much packaging boxes and cardboard and coming through the door uh, especially during the lockdown when we're having to order stuff from home but i noticed something in particular that i wanted to just mention which is in some ways the more expensive the object the more packaging it seems to come with almost as if the supplier feels like they need to treat you with extra care for example i bought a just a a, a kitchen i bought a kitchen item it was um, a food thermometer 
So it cost a mm. bit more than the average more than the average item on Amazon. It was like I don't know, let's say a hundred dollars. Uh, so it was slightly more expensive. Um, it's a nice looking item. It's something you'll keep for a few years. But honestly, it came in about four boxes, one inside the <laughs> other. And then the final box was this most exquisite carbon, cardboard box. But it, you know, it was almost like something you put on the mantelpiece. But it's just a cardboard box. So in the end, you just land up throwing it away. And I just thought maybe companies need to start realizing that as much as we value the item we've bought, we're not going to value it more because it comes in several 10, five or 10 layers of packaging. I think in the future, and I hope companies start realizing that that customers are going to, you know, appreciate their order uh, even more than they would have otherwise if if there was just an absolute minimum of packaging. Um, so, and I'd be definitely less exhausted if that was the case. So that's that's my that's my story for today. No, I think it's totally true. The the amount of boxing or wrapping is 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 incredibly excessive. I wondered um, if this was something unique, you know, unique to, to obviously it can't be unique to to uh, to the UK or Denmark or Europe. But do you do you find the same in in China? Do you say you have the same phenomenon? Oh, de- oh, definitely. And I am a frequent online shopper. I get honestly te- just before this call, I I just got a delivery of um temporary temporary tattoos. Don't ask why I bought them, but um I just <laughs> <laughs> I bought some um and the packaging. The ta- obviously tags are really small, stick on like you used to have um in, in primary school secondary school but the packaging uh, you would have thought i was buying you know a, a, a huge guitar it, it was just it was just too much <laughs> exactly yeah sometimes the size of the box has no has no correlation to the object inside it's just you know it's just madness indeed indeed but i think we're sounding like two old men complaining here tim yeah so, we should uh, move on <laughs> we should move on we should move on let's talk about the world of um emissions and emissions control well let's move on to the substance of our of our podcast uh to when we first met which is going back a long time i think it was probably somewhere around 2007 um it was at one of the first integer diesel emissions conferences and i, I was ast- i was astounded to see, to see your the first presentation i'd ever seen from you um i remember thinking what a great product you developed basically you and your team had developed a, a technology for, for diesel after treatment to do with nox control can you tell us quickly uh, briefly what what it was and and it, and why did you choose this particular application for the the primary research and the technology that you developed yeah it, it goes uh, from uh, at that point in time it, it goes back a few years before that when uh, ammonia was kind of a natural topic of interest in the catalysis center that uh, I was engaged in at, at DTU. Uh, so, uh, you know, ammonia synthesis, indirect hydrogen storage through ammonia, things like that was that was all on the agenda. And we uh, we then worked and on uh, on ways of uh, of dealing with uh, the safety problem for ammonia, uh, which is something you need to be careful with when you're especially if you want to talk about something for cars and trucks, which is really end user products, uh, where you you will need to handle this maybe in a different way. Than, than conventional anhydrous ammonia. So we, we developed and invented uh, solid storage of ammonia where the ammonia molecule would be bound in a in a solid material, thereby taking the volatility out of it and not becoming a pressurized uh, liquid in, uh, in, in, a, in a container. Um, and that, that basically was able to, uh, let's say, 
paved the way for potential different applications. And, and when the company was founded, we actually had two tracks in mind that we could pursue. One of them was indirect energy storage, so indirect hydrogen storage as ammonia, and then uh, using that in this solid form. Uh, and the other one was uh, was the removal of NOx uh, through ammonia SCR, which was, you know, from a chemistry or catalytic point of view, very well known, uh, had been done in power plants for a couple of decades, but, uh, but in automotive, it was about to become, let's say, SCR implementation was was on, on its way, and, uh, and and skin given that the the way of solving the safety problem at that time would be through urea dissolved in water, the AdBlue solution. Then uh, we knew that the direct functionality of ammonia with the SCR catalyst would be optimal. So having solved the safety problem, you could pave the way for the best FDR, FCR functionality. Uh, and, and the journey started in the company after the patent application, which was just a one gram ammonia tablet. And, and from there on, it was about scaling up, uh, developing system, finding components, uh, control software, uh, you know, scaling up production, the infrastructure supported because it was cartridges going back and forth. So there was a, I mean, from, from there on, the, uh, the, the focus uh, after a couple of years, we, 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 uh, we went mainstream to focus on DNOX because that was that was the area of application that was the, you could call it the least uncertain, uh, where you have the best chances of controlling your destiny. If, if it had to be something with energy carriage, uh, carrying, then you would need to rely on fuel cells and other things to make its way to the market as well. Uh, so uh, the focus on DNOX came from a, 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 you know, a business strategy decision. So that's fascinating. So you, 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 what you had really was fundamentally a safe, way to store ammonia, from what I understand. You then had to find applications where ammonia would be needed in some form. And it turned out that the most, the furthest developed application was this SCR for automotive, um, where the need was clear and things were moving quite quickly. How did, to tell us how it evolved. You know, you, you obviously would have started by hiring some automotive engineers and talking to OEMs uh, to get some testing going. So just tell us a bit more about where, you know, where you started and where the applications evolved to. Yeah, originally, uh, I mean, people that worked with SCR development for, for, for these kind of, you know, truck system initially, uh, the benchmarking would always been done with ammonia gas from a bottle. So the, the the companies like the OEMs, when they had first when they were first getting familiar with uh, with ammonia SCR, it was actually done with ammonia. And then all the development in the automotive sector afterwards with with urea was to figure out how can you get urea to work almost as well as ammonia. Uh, so what we did to begin with was to develop a system that was basically you know. Uh, we were proving that we could release the ammonia from the solid material in a dynamic way so that we could follow the dosing transients and the requirements that a vehicle would need to fulfill the uh, you know the ability to run the SCR uh, catalyst in in, uh, in a dynamic way so initially we we uh, and the, maybe another fun fact is that 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 Aminex never had an engine dyno we were we were always able to work with somebody who wanted the ammonia bad enough so that the demonstration was done on their uh, engine dyno vehicles. Uh, so we what we focused on was to develop a system that could dose ammonia dynamically uh, as if it was you know a urea system or an ammonia bottle. But then basically ammonia being uh, coming from the solid storage uh, system where the end user perspective of safety was was uh, you could say the main challenge that was resolved. 
And then so after that, of all the applications you look, so just the just a question on that. Of all the applications yeah. you looked at, uh, which you know, which of the applications did you think was technically most suited to, or you know, the most obvious place? Where did you think you'd have the most success based on the different applications you looked at within automotive? Yeah, I mean, it, you can basically look at the SCR window for an SCR catalyst. It, it, it it's fairly broad. It it uh, you know it, it's the best catalysts, they start to work from 150 degrees Celsius, and then they, uh, you know, all the way up to, you know, 300, sometimes more, uh, at, some, at which point you may, uh, you, you can have some challenges, high temperature with ammonia oxidation and so forth, but but there's a rather broad window, but in particular, the, uh, the low temperature window was always in our mind, because, uh, you know, if you drive with, uh, with, you know, low speed driving vehicles in urban driving conditions, this is where your SCR catalyst is, is, is exposed to the lowest operating temperature. And that was really always in our mind as the sweet spot uh, for the technology, because this is where it was the most difficult to dose the competing solution, so to speak. The, the AdBlue system would always have the most difficulties dosing at low temperature because of, of converting the urea molecule to ammonia uh, would be difficult at uh, you know around 200 degrees or lower. Uh, and that meant we could basically activate the SCR catalyst with direct ammonia gas dosing all the way down to 150 degrees Celsius without requiring the engine to do thermal management. So in that way, you could say indirectly, the way of operating the system would allow uh, fuel saving uh, if the comparable system would be forced to do uh, engine management to warm up the catalyst further for the urea system to work. Uh, of course, it it... it it goes without saying that if there's no requirement to have that functionality down to 150, there's no value of having the better technology because the alternative would be just to turn off the dosing. But, but uh, that was really the sweet spot. And that was also, as we'll get to uh, later in this discussion, I guess, uh, why things like city buses and, and, uh, and RCVs, uh, you know, garbage trucks and things like that were, were some of the most obvious applications. I see. So really the the urea that's used in S in the SCR systems today is effectively a carrier of ammonia, um, I guess. And in that sense, uh, the step of making the urea into ammonia, uh, if, if that if that has extra energy requirements, as you described, then that could be an issue. It certainly is an issue with exhaust temperature and thermal management. Um, when we talk about I mean, just thinking back, I, I met you in almost every possible city in the world. You can imagine, you must have been pushing this technology, which was very novel, uh, to so many different customers and OEMs globally. I, I know we would have met in Latin America, you know, China, India, and everywhere else you, you can guess. So did, did you have to think about um, the way that you managed your resources and, you know, the, the kind of launch capital you had in order to find or t target the customers that you thought would be most successful? Or did you just have to do uh, as much as you could with everyone and hope something landed? I mean, you, you uh, it, it's, I mean, the, the initial part, the, the first years, it was about getting broad awareness uh, because also at that time we were, we were, we were solving the problems, you know, it, it was, we were solving problems as we went along the way. Uh, when we first started to make the system, it was difficult to figure out exactly how would we be able to produce in large scale. Uh, these cartridges would help the ammonia, but also the ability to, let's say, recharge them and, and run the infrastructure with cartridges back and forth in kind of a, you could call it a conventional bottle infrastructure uh, as we would have it today. Uh, 
there were a lot of things about the commercial setup that wasn't clear from the start. But we attacked uh, we attacked uh, the the markets and the OEMs who were looking to be most aggressive towards the, the clean solutions and also in the markets where, uh, where trend, let's say where the legislation would be coming up the, the, the strongest. So obviously uh, US and, and Europe, uh, we, there was a lot of attention in, in those regions initially. And, and as you know, China has, uh, among others, have come up very strongly uh, later uh, in, in, uh, in, in the way of looking at real driving emissions. So I think we, we uh, and we also try to help influence the, uh, let's say, the the awareness that things could be done perhaps in a better way than what was known. It was also important to to be informed on, let's say, on, on let's say, on mostly the sources uh, because it's the requirements will never be set stronger if uh, if it is not known that there's something on the shelf that could solve it. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, in that way the. Uh, the ability to, sorry, the the attack to to both OEMs and also legislators and uh, and authorities. That was that was uh, all, all these things were important. Yeah, the regu- the discussion with regulators is always important. I want to come back to the infrastructure point because you mentioned the uh, the way that you know the delivery of the reagent to the vehicle uh, is is a key a key challenge uh, for SCI in general. Um, and I guess uh, I guess urea solution would have been a, would have been seen as a simpler infrastructure because it can be delivered as a, in bulk as a liquid, whereas uh, Aminex technology required bottles uh, and and a more complicated um, infrastructure. Do you think that there was a do you think that that difference or the challenge of the infrastructure was a, a factor that meant that you didn't get applications in some cases which which were technically really fantastic, but infrastructure was a challenge. It's, I mean, yeah, automotive in general is a, uh, I mean, it's a big uh, conservative industry uh, where things are moving uh, in not always, it's, it's not always easy to change the pace uh, of direct or direction of, uh, of, of certain things. So, uh, of course, there was, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on how to move along with, uh, with the app new solution for trucks. And then it was moving on to how should it be rolled out for, for cars. And, and so, of course, that's from that perspective. Uh, I think actually we were seeing a little bit as a risk of, uh, of uh, for, let's say, from the Apple industry, we were seen as a risk of, uh, of of pulling attention away from a strong wish to rapidly roll out also, let's say, infrastructure with pumps for cars and things like that. The uh, you could say one thing that is the strength of a closed system is that you bring forward a reductant that is in a closed bottle, so to speak, you put it on a vehicle with a quick connector and you use it and you then disconnect it afterwards and put another one on and the other one goes back to refill. So in that way, it's a very nice and closed, uh, let's say, uh, technology where the, if the ability to tamper with it is actually, you know, very, very low. And, uh, and that's, you could say from, an, so from a delivery point of view, it can be a challenge because you need to, to let's say, you need to deliver uh, these cartridges like you would need to deliver whatever 10 liter urea cartridges or, 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 or you know, containers. Uh, and of course the difficulty is when you need to bring them back, uh, then that's an infrastructure challenge. From a sustainable view, it's, it's, it's good that the product goes back and is retouched and sent out again because you don't have plastic waste being created. So there's, there's some nice features around it and the, also the ability to, to not tamper with it. You cannot dilute it with water, let's say. So the, the risks that are a little bit linked with an open system like, like urea was, was kind of easier to control here. But, but for sure, 
uh, rolling out an infrastructure with uh, passenger car OEMs, and uh, and you know it, that was it was always the uh, a key question to address. And uh, and it is an operation, uh, although not in as large scale as one would have hoped. Uh, so let's say conceptually, the technology works. The results are uh, without doubt the best. Uh, but but it's not always uh, that's always that's not always enough. Yeah, that's right. I, I just thinking thinking through for myself the sequence is interesting because you mentioned trucks and cars. I guess one of the factors that played into the way that things developed was that trucks came first to use advanced SCR, SCR after treatment technology. So, and then once you had the truck industry deciding to go with uh, an AdBlue solution, then when we got to uh, when we got to this point where cars needed to use SCR for for NOx after treatments, uh, the AdBlue, AdBlue was already the incumbent technology. So the AdBlue distribution system was in place, and then Aminex was having to come up against an established distribution system. But uh, but beyond that, I've got to I, I've got to say that uh, just from my memory, even I think I think that. Um, there was an over, uh, you know, the, I think the concern that OEMs, car OEMs, had about customers and and the intervention they like, the, the having to refill tanks or change canisters. That for me, uh, I'm not sure what you think. I'd be interested to know. But for me, that concern that they had was probably the the core, or one of the one of the triggers of the whole Dieselgate scandal. Because I think that they were they were so worried about inconveniencing customers that that. In fact, they reconfigured systems as we now know to reduce dosing and reduce the effectiveness of of the SCR system. So, do you, do you think there's a connection? I mean, do you think that if if you know if OEMs had been more bold about how they used after treatments uh, and weren't that weren't overly concerned about that customer uh, customer aspects uh, inconvenience, they, then we may have seen Aminex in cars today. How, you know, well, a good question, I guess, is how 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 much do you think Dieselgate was a feature in the decision in the background which resulted in in us not using Aminex today in passenger cars yeah, it was it's it's a i mean it's it's a it's a complex it's a complex matter uh, when we when we worked uh, i mean we worked with this technology and kind of made it ready and proved it uh, in advance of of euro 6 uh, so it was it was potentially something that uh, that could have started already from 2014-15 ish, and that was that was about at the same time. I think it was was it 2015 in September. I think when Dieselgate broke out. Uh, ironically, the day that it broke out was the day it was announced that we won the first retrofit order for for the Copenhagen city bus fleet. Uh, I have a screenshot exactly the same day, Dieselgate, and the next headline is uh, MNX wins, so and so. Uh, so that was a bit of, a, of, of irony there. But I think we initially, we thought that Dieselgate would be a major boost for us, uh, because now we felt, okay, now it's out in the open. Uh, this is a problem. Uh, there's something that's not right in the industry. It, it needs to be corrected and something better has to be implemented. So we uh, we we were, I don't know if we were much more confident, but we felt that it, this was this was the right kind of uh, of awareness that would help push this uh, forward. And uh, and of course we're working massively towards uh, these kind of uh, of, of uh, let's say technology demonstration with OEMs, and they were going on and they were successful. We we made the cleanest pickup truck with Cummins. Uh, a, a Nissan Titan was was uh, made, you know. I think around 10 times lower than Euro 6 level was done with a dual dosing system already back in 2013. So, 
uh, and we were retrofitting a car, a Euro 5 car that was highly non-compliant. Uh, uh, compliant. It was very high emissions in, uh, in off-cycle. And we retrofitted that to become as good as new Euro 6 vehicles uh, without messing with the engine. So clearly there was great opportunities to do, uh, let's say, to do the best, so to speak. Um, but I think when we when Dieselgate, it just kept moving on. It became worse and worse, if you will. And uh, and at some point, the the public perception of diesel was was being hit uh, rather massively. And uh, and I think that triggered uh, some or most of the OEMs to to start to think much more on the battery vehicles and the, the willingness to go, let's say, one step further with the best for for, for after treatment for diesel. I think that willingness to look at uh, at taking another let's call it investment round and uh, and technology step uh, instead of uh, working on improvement urea solution uh, i think that willingness uh, probably disappeared with uh, with the massive entry of dieselgate because then the focus became so much on, on battery cars yeah exactly I, I i can remember that sequence i at that time i was working as a consultants kind of uh, commercial consultants and strategy consultants in after treatments and I had I can't tell you how many calls I had with with funds and investors in car companies who were asking whether it is possible to, to produce a, a clean diesel vehicle and if, if SCR technology was actually capable of, of, of achieving the required emissions uh, performance and I just kept on coming back to the fact that it is absolutely uh, achievable and there are technologies like Aminex around that can deliver exactly what's required but uh, I think we can reflect back now that the it was just too there's just too much damage done it was really just fatal for diesel uh, I think very unfortunately because diesel could have played a much much more helpful role uh, through these transition years like like we're seeing at the moment through to much lower car carbon emissions so it's just crazy that we saw that the end of the technology because of such a such a an enormous mistake by a few key OEMs, but we, yeah. we, we there's nothing, there's, you know, it's too late to to change. But um, I think everyone involved think is it, quite. I think my, my final sad. remark on that, Tim, my final remark on that would be there's also some good things that came out of the demonstration that things could be done better. Was that there? I think there was enormous focus then on real driving emissions and things. I mean they. Things are better now. The, the tailpipe are much, much cleaner, but that's because real development effort has been put in to really solve it, you know, and heat management and so forth. So it, it has become much better. It's just, it, I think what has come as a consequence of that is uh, the benefit of diesel has, in terms of fuel economy, been hit a little bit because, you know, if you put the right measures in place to let your rear do the job in a decent way, your, 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 your system cost and fuel economy will be hit a little bit by it. And, uh, and, and alternatively, with direct ammonia gas dosing, you would have been able to get away with, let's say, a little bit better fuel economy. So anyway, but I think that's uh, you've had that, all the benefits. Uh, yeah, but yeah. It's, it's that that ship has sailed. But um, the I guess let's let's turn across to to where it landed up because you you mentioned that on that same day that Dieselgate broke, you were landing your first uh, project to do with retrofits. So just tell us how how Aminex um, evolved and where did you la land up in terms of the best applications. Yeah, so we uh, we 
we we won the Europe that there was a European tender, uh, a novel public tender process for for the Copenhagen city bus retrofit that was, uh, and that was uh, landed in 2015, and we started to roll out. Uh, yeah, during uh, late 15 and during 16, uh, and that was when MNX was. Uh, that was the first order when we, as a, if we say, a customer tier one supplier, uh, delivered the system with uh, with full responsibility to 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 the bus fleet in in Copenhagen. So something around 300, and, uh, yeah, a little short of 350 uh, city buses were retrofitted, and we. Uh, and it, I mean, it, it rolled out nicely. Uh, so the system uh, would be would be installed. We we uh, the, the vehicles were upgraded in a day, so they were getting in as uh, not so nice zero four or fives and rolling out as zero six uh, equivalents uh, at the end of the day. And 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 then uh, basically we were supporting then the the fleet operators with uh, with with cartridges. In in the they were being refilled at the plant that we have set up for production in the in the central Denmark. So so let's say the cartridges were going back and forth and being delivered with the with the bus fleets. And then on top of that, we had uh, we had implemented a a an, an online system that was uh, communicating between between vehicles and servers so that we could keep track of what was going on, but also uh, support the customers with uh, with daily emails on how the vehicles were running and and prediction on when they would need fresh cartridges, so to speak. Uh, and that's that uh, that's that was an online monitoring system that I'm very proud of how the team worked very intensively on developing and implementing because it it was was also good for transparency that that you were able to show what was going on. Maybe we could talk about that a little bit later. Uh, the the uh, the second project was uh, was entry in London, and and that was where some of the things we had done in Copenhagen started to become standard. So a a monitoring system became mandatory for retrofit projects in London because of what we did in Copenhagen. So but those were the the two main projects that that, that rolled out in the years uh, from 15 to to, to 17. Um, and obviously, the city buses at low speed is a perfect application for for nice control at at, at low SCR temperature, which was well proven. Yeah, those those are well known projects, and I, I think the key thing there is that the, the the authorities or the you know the organisations running city buses, their first priority is to make sure that the emissions are genuinely low in the city centre because they really are targeting reducing ambient air NOx levels. So that made it the perfect application, I guess. Um, and 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 your your technology was clearly demonstrated to to absolutely manage and, and handle that kind of that kind of te technical challenge. Um, you, you mentioned earlier the real driving emissions thing. I'd like to just just emphasize and I guess agree that um, one of the outcomes of Dieselgate was that much broader awareness of real driving emissions, not just in city centres but everywhere. And and I guess it was a mistake or a big shortcoming in the regulation before Dieselgate that real driving emissions weren't a focus. So it's not only the car companies that were at fault. So I think there, there's a broader issue uh, in terms of making sure that these vehicles run at all at, at all conditions. But one of the one of the, the things I, I'd like to ask you about, which is a really interesting feature of those city bus programs, is uh, the, the app that came along with those projects. So you, you developed, you guys developed an app which could track emissions, real real world, real time emissions of each vehicle. And you could go in and see performance um, of, of the bus fleet as you know, at, at, at the time you were opening up the app. So what, why did you take the time and, and, and investment to develop that app? And what was the advantage for, you know, for the users or for customers? Yeah, there were kind of two levels in it. There was a very detailed level that was available to authorities and to the fleet operators so that they can really track the vehicles. So every 
I mean, uh, every five minutes, the, each bus would send a data package reflecting the last five minutes uh, to, a, to a server. And then basically all the way back to when the vehicle first started, you could track what was going on. So kilometers driving, knocks removed, uh, diagnostic features and, and, and fill levels and cartridges and so forth. Uh, but then on top of that, we, we made that public app, uh, which was then showing on the Copenhagen project, the London project, what is the, the vehicles running now? What is the average uh, tailpipe concentration, uh, the reduction of NOx uh, from, from engine to tailpipe, uh, millions of kilometers driving, uh, uh, how many tons of NOx removed? The, the, uh, the public app was made because we, uh, we knew when, when, when you are very confident that the technology works, well, under all conditions, you should also you should you should be able to show you you should have a desire to show that uh, because trust comes with transparency, and uh, and I think that's that's something where we felt you know we we uh, you you can indirectly put pressure on uh, on on the system so to speak by by showing what can be done. So it was uh, it was both and you could say it was a tool for the local authorities to be able to display. Look, we did something good, and you can see the results. Uh, obviously, not everyone in Copenhagen are running around looking at the app on a daily basis, but the transparency is there, and I think that's that that, that was the key impact, uh, so that you, uh, you 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 can you have faith in results when you can see what's going on. Yeah, that that accountability and that and that transparency is is uh, fascinating. I think in terms of a pressure to. Uh, ensure good performance, and uh, it's maybe something we can come back to uh, later in our next discussion. But let's let's move on because we've discussed uh, had a great discussion about about those that Aminex technology. But you've you've you, you've moved careers uh, in some senses, and you're now at Maersk, um, involved in the shipping industry. So uh, connected because of course there's still the ammonia theme, which which is really important, and you 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 described to us right from the beginning, but it's a, it's a change of direction in some sense. So tell us about your new role at Mask. Yeah, uh, that that was a two-step process. First at Mask, and now at the center. So uh, if you go back to the late 2018, uh, Søren Skov, who is the CEO of of uh, of, of Mask. Uh, announced that uh, it was an ambition to become net zero of uh, of, of, of mask by by 2050, uh, and and following that they started to look for for people to enter the organization wanting to take part in that journey, uh, and I I applied for a position there and I got in and uh, when I when I came uh, they say that that uh, that led to starting at mask in a small team that was working in in, uh, in uh, to try to set up this new center that meant applying for funding which was then granted by ap miller uh, ap miller foundation uh, so we uh, we were trying to scope this new center which is now called mask mckinney miller center for zero carbon shipping so from uh, from summer 2019 until uh, let's say the spring of 20 then uh, we were basically trying to put together what kind of uh, what what could the center value proposition be the getting the funding in place for it uh, what kind of uh, you know what, what would be kind of an r&d scope an r&d structure and and purpose of such a center and then uh, and then the ap miller foundation uh, released or let's say uh, decided to fund this by uh, by roughly 64 million us dollars which was announced in june uh, last year and that was kind of when the uh, the, uh, the the hiring at Mask uh, was kind of uh, starting to come to an end. 
uh, Bosjev Simonsen, who is the CEO of the center, also uh, uh, was already at the time uh, working uh, on, on this. And uh, from 1st of November, uh, the center opened the doors with a new, uh, uh, you know, I mean, independent, uh, it, it's an independent organization. Uh, with uh, so it's it's uh, it's a commercial foundation uh, set up with uh, you could call it well a charitable purpose but it's it's a it's 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 a not-for-profit organization uh, which will over the next few years grow to become roughly 100 people uh, both sensor uh, employees but also so-called secondees from the partner organizations around us so so that that kind of uh, that journey in mask was dedicated for my path to be involved in uh, in this process of trying to create the new center. So, and following the launch, I then moved into it. And the role, which is called uh, yeah, Head of Maritime Application Viability, is, uh, is, is kind of a cross-center function that is uh, getting together information. We can talk about some of the programs a little bit later. But, but this, uh, this ability to have an overview of what's going on with shipping over the next uh, three decades of, of decarbonizing, this is where the center wants to play a significant role in helping to accelerate. Right. So so the connection to MERSC is, I guess, as a funder or supporter of the centre rather than being directly in control. Yeah, I mean, the, there are there are seven founding partners of the centre, which are already from the outset strongly supporting this initiative. And that, that is MERSC. It's American Bureau of Shipping. It's Cargill. It's Man Energy Solutions. It's NYK line, the Japanese shipping company, it's Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, and, uh, and I think was that seven or did I miss something? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And those, they are they are big supporters of uh, of this, and um, and and following that we have additional corporate partners involved as well, organizations like uh, Total, Alpha Laval. Uh, um, uh, yeah, I'm sure the group will, will, will expand as, as your reach expands. Um, and you're going to tell us more because this this whole initiative is going to require so much coordination and lobbying and uh, involving other stakeholders that, that it's going to be quite a journey uh, in, in the future. But most of our listeners on the podcast, or many of our listeners, are involved in more traditional automotive applications for fuels or AdBlue or uh, emissions control after treatment, that, that kind of technology. So as, as an introduction, uh, can you tell us exactly what the ambition is? So what are the IMO targets for decarbonizing shipping? What's the schedule? And I guess, importantly, do you think it's achievable? Yeah, it's it's a tough uh, it's a tough sector to decarbonize. It's 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 truly it's truly hard to abate. Uh, direct electrification is not possible. The batteries would have to be too big, so it, it's something that requires replacement of oil with something else. Uh, if we just briefly touch on the on the on the IMO targets, it's there is a uh, there is an ambition to be roughly. 50% uh, down uh, when we reach 2050 uh, relative to, I think it's relative to 2008 or maybe 2018. It, it depends a little bit on how people look at it, what's the reference point. But the ambition is to try to become 50% uh, down. But there's not really, there's not really a, an official, let's say, uh, there's not an official rule, so to speak, in place that dictates exactly what has to happen. Uh, and I think right now there's a lot of ambitions being communicated by various organizations who are who are communicating a net zero ambition and not just a 50% down ambition. Uh, so there are various places in the world where where there's a 
There are strong signals for movement. Of course, the European Union is doing something, uh, looking at this as well. Uh, so exactly what will happen, let's say, who will be the first ones to really put down uh, uh, these uh, official uh, targets as, as limits that can't be exceeded? Uh, it's, it's not, uh, that is not done yet. And I think the shipping sector also, uh, there's, it, there are a couple of fundamental challenges that needs to be addressed. Uh, first of all, the scale. Uh, it's it's somewhere around 300 million tons of, uh, of, of fuel oil being used uh, per year in the shipping sector. And, and, and it does a good job because it's by far the most efficient way of transporting goods. So it, it's, it's not done in, uh, for, let's say, for, for a bad purpose, but it is a lot of fuel and it, it corresponds to roughly one gigaton of CO2 per year. Um, and that means replacing that with something else. It's a massive change requiring enormous investments in renewable technologies. You know, uh, you, you would need you know, way more than, you know, maybe around 1,500 uh, at least, uh, maybe even more gigawatts of renewable, installed renewable power to synthesize fuels that could be used to replace the the current uh, the current heavy fuel oils uh, and so so that's there's an infrastructure scale problem but then of course there's also a technology problem or challenges that uh, that some of the possible fuels of the future are are not yet supported by the right uh, let's say technologies uh, and, and in the case of ammonia being a candidate for for a future net zero fuel then the the engine the two stroke engine is, uh, is under development by many solutions and others. And, and as far as we know, the work is progressing nicely, but, uh, but that engine is not ready perhaps until 2024. Um, and in the meantime, there are a lot of other important topics to deal with, uh, you know, uh, bunkering procedures, how, how do you certify ammonia as a marine, maritime fuel, what are the specifications that, that, that suppliers need to know in order to develop the technical solutions and so forth. So a, a range of challenges, but, but, but I would say this, the scale of what needs to happen is, uh, is from that perspective, a, uh, something that really uh, is, is critical to look at. Uh, and it, it, so it, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of fossil fuel to be replaced by something else. And, uh, and that's you know, setting the target and setting the bar really low and then combining that with uh, looking at the right things that needs to happen. And, and, and something that is very clear is that this will be more expensive than, than fossil fuels. And, uh, and that's also why, and that's part of the, uh, the activity areas of the sensor, to be able to show in a clear and transparent way what is the added cost of these new solutions so that the market can figure out a way to, to create uh, you know, a level playing field where these solutions can find their way out early, as early as possible without basically losing money for the ones operating with it. Yeah, gotcha. So the we'll, we'll talk about the technology and the infrastructure challenges because those are fascinating for our listeners, especially to to consider. But before we get there, let's just look again uh, another aspect of the potential driver for decarbonizing shipping. Because if you're if you're a cynic, um, you could you know you could point to the fact that IMO the the IMO is not hasn't been very successful at implementing targets on time or in in a in a um, an aggressive way. So. Uh, you, you know, you could expect that IMO targets might not be um, uh, an absolutely critical driver behind this, but I get the sense that there's a, there's lots of other interest in decarbonizing shipping. Um, 
not only from customers of shipping companies like you know big big retailers and and manufacturing companies but what about even to the end customer you know the end customer level and to what extent do you think uh, customers not only in the supply chain but final customers could have an impact on decarbonizing shipping and how would that even happen is it, is that going to be something that drives down the, uh, co2 emissions from ships uh, hopefully, uh, and it's uh, it, it, it started a little bit. Uh, again, one of the founding partners of of, of the sensor, Mask, uh, they have started uh, an initiative last year, which is called Mask Eco Delivery, and this is where a, a certain quantity of biofuel is entering the, uh, the let's say the, the bunkering structure, so that let's say uh, some some fuel is being replaced by biofuel, and the CO2 benefit that is generated from that is then selectively directed towards customers who are willing to pay a premium for green shipping. So you could say the business model that supports some, let's say, willingness to pay initiatives is uh, is being started. And, and that's a very good sign uh, how how broad that early market is. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that's fully understood. Uh, and it, but it also depends on what kind of product you're talking about. If you if you would uh, offer a uh, sorry, if you would buy a, a flat screen TV or or jeans or a pair of shoes, the the, the premium on on let's say on the price what you pay if it was done by green shipping would be actually quite limited. Uh, and so if if you were kind of uh, if you were shopping online and you had the opportunity to to pay whatever uh, 50 euros for a pair of jeans, if you could pay 51 and it was uh, you know carbon neutral shipping, would you then click that uh, or not? Uh, and I think many people would. Uh, and if, if something like that can can start to be generating, uh, let's say, uh, let's say willingness to pay that can help close the gap then uh, for sure that will help and, and hopefully we have seen very far from the last of that. I, I agree and I, I do think that in the future we'll even see things like zero carbon products you know if you if you're buying any product you could if you could choose a zero carbon option like even a net zero carbon food product you, you like people choose organic products currently maybe in the future you'll have the chance to, to to buy net zero carbon bananas for example or whatever it is and then that 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 funds through the supply chain the extra costs that you discussed but let's jump into some of the issues uh well, let's first talk about technology uh, and in, you, you mentioned the two-stroke engine but i think some people in, in uh, some of the listeners will be surprised to hear that there is such a thing as a as as a, an ammonia combustion engine. So can you just tell us about what what's what's being developed? Are we talking uh, an engine that's dual fuel? So is this is this a very similar engine to an LNG engine or a bunker fuel? You know, a conventional diesel engine. What kind of technology is involved? How much work's being needed to develop these new engines? Yeah. The the typical two-stroke engine is uh, I mean huge uh, huge bores. You know. 50 centimeter bore more in, in some cases, and they are the the, the dual fuel engines which are there today are capable of you know LNG, LPG, and methanol, uh, and and that's where you have a, a you, you have this combustion system where you have two injection types on, on each cylinder. So you have you have what you call a pilot fuel. So there is pilot injection. So together with the main fuel, there is a there is a pilot oil that's being injected at the same time to help the combustion run properly. And that's required with methane and methanol and uh, and uh, and also LPG, and uh, and the ammonia engine is is quite comparable to that. It 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 would look 
probably the most like an LPG engine uh, because the temperature and pressure for storing of storage of ammonia is, is quite comparable to LPG, whereas uh, LNG is, is actually quite different. Uh, it's, uh, the fuel system is something like you're delivering 300 bar gaseous methane to the engine uh, head, whereas uh, with, uh, with LPG and, and also with ammonia, it would be liquid pressurized uh, fuel that would be injected and then vaporized and combusted. So, so actually, it, it's, it's somewhere resembling an, an LPG engine. But what is uh, important to, to consider here is then that the combustion value per mass of ammonia is, is, is significantly lower than LPG and, uh, and, uh, and methane because you, you're not, you don't have a combustion value from carbon uh, because it, it doesn't have carbon in it, obviously. Uh, and that's where uh, a lot of the, the, the development is ongoing right now, how to make stable combustion and also then to see what comes out of the, uh, of the, in, in the exhaust. Uh, there is obviously a need to make sure that there is not excessive amounts of, uh, of NOx coming out. And the amount of NOx that is coming out uh, would need to be dealt with in typical SER reaction. And in that particular case, you wouldn't need the add new solution because you already have ammonia in the tank. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's all, all you need is available. Uh, just a question on the ammonia combustion engine. Does it also need a pilot injection of another, of another hydrocarbon fuel or does the engine operate yeah. only on ammonia? No, it, it's, it's dual fuel. It needs, uh, it needs a pilot oil as well. And to be uh, and to be truly net zero, that pilot oil would need to be a bio biofuel based oil as well. Uh, but of course, if you can if you can have 95% of uh, of uh, let's say neutral ammonia being combusted and then 5% of of some fossil fuel, then obviously you have come a very very far way. But uh, but again, it also speaks into the scale of the challenge that all the ammonia that's being produced today in the world is fossil ammonia it's it's not even green so so a lot of stuff needs to happen and then uh, yeah and and obviously there's one more point uh, that is also crucial and it, it speaks into the the uh, the fuel itself because right now the maritime sector is looking at tanks tank to wake that means it's it's not the entire value chain that's that's being uh, put into this this scope and it really needs to become from the primary energy to the to the wake of the vessel uh, so that you if it's ammonia it doesn't contain carbon, but it could have had a carbon impact in its production. So, and similarly with methanol, it's, you know, there are a range of potential candidates here, uh, ammonia, methanol, uh, future biomethane as well, and, and other options, uh, regular biofuels. It's important to understand how they are produced because the way that they are, I mean, how, how zero are they, so to speak? How, how much towards net zero is it? And, and, uh, and the value of that needs to be able to be quantified because otherwise the ones who are very much almost net zero, uh, there needs to be a benefit from that compared to if you're only, let's say, 50% done. Absolutely. The, all that matters in this, in this endeavor is the full life cycle emissions. One, one question I wanted to ask you, which is a, a question I've been asked a few times, why, why is a combustion engine uh, the best option if, you, if you're considering ammonia as a fuel in, in, in the shipping industry rather than uh, using the ammonia for a, for a fuel cell electric drive system? Um, is there efficiency differences or cost differences? It seems like the direction of travel is towards combustion engines for an ammonia application. Why is that? It, it's, it's because it's, it's, it's there now. The shortest development time for something that can reach the right scale and implementation, that's through the two-stroke engine. Um, 
Actually, back in uh, back in the MNX days, more than 10 years ago, we were involved with the demonstration of, of converting ammonia directly in solid oxide fuel cell stack uh, for, for, for some of the first time that was proven. Um, but solid oxide fuel cells, they have also struggled to get massively on the market, but but that's also coming now. There are companies getting significant attention, like Serious Power in UK, uh, for instance, getting an in, let's say investment with uh, with uh, with Bosch. Uh, Danish technology company has a top has been working on SOFC for quite a lot of time, but now also focusing a lot on electrolyzers using the same technology. So the solid oxide membrane technology is getting a lot of attention, and it holds quite a lot of interesting promise. Uh, as as one fuel cell option of, of the future, given that it can convert these these power to X fuels are light molecules and they can be converted directly back into power with high efficiency in solid oxide fuel cells with an efficiency that will uh, exceed uh, the capabilities of, of the two-stroke engine. Obviously, the cost per installed power uh, will be higher. Uh, and the, so the, the basically the challenge for the fuel cells here is to be able to capitalize on the benefit of the added efficiency, uh, the cost per kilowatt install needs to go down so that the that the balance between uh, uh, capital and OPEX is is, uh, is is found, and and then obviously the value of high efficiency can be uh, very important when you think think about how many windmills or wind turbines do you need per ship in order to do the job. That whole value chain perspective with uh, losses from end to end uh, is a crucial factor going ahead as well. Right, so we might see some application of fuel cell technology in some form of shipping in the future, but it, I, as you say, it, it's an issue of developments of um, installed cost, um, which yeah. needs to be addressed. There are many, there are many, many projects are, are starting to pop up. We are also engaged in what is called SOFC for Maritime, and it's a project that has just kicked off now, and that's with uh, solid oxide fuel cells as the as the uh, as the system that is being studied together with uh, right now ammonia but it can also work directly with methanol and others so uh, so that's uh, it, it, these projects are starting now and uh, and the value of efficiency will increase when the fuel becomes more expensive uh, let's talk about ammonia the challenges of ammonia as a, as a maritime fuel, because it is not the only option. You mentioned uh, there's methanol, there's a few other options available. Aside, aside from the, the production of green ammonia, which we'll talk about in the next question, just as a fuel itself, compared to the other options, what are the challenges you see that ammonia faces to be broadly adopted? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's basically, there is this, uh, the, the natural first question whenever you talk about ammonia is safety. And, 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 it, and that's also the right uh, question to ask uh, because, you know, I mean, safety comes first, no matter what. Uh, but having said that, it's, it's also, I mean, it's a proven technology. It has been, I mean, with the, the, the global market, there is shipping of 20 million tons of ammonia per year, roughly on, on large gas carriers, which are pretty much the same as an LPG carrier. So there's a lot of experience, and uh, and what is important in the next step is when ammonia is being changed from being a cargo to being a fuel, it needs to enter different places in the ship to get into the engine room, and that means things like double wall pipes and and you know special systems for you know ventilation and things like that. You know these things are crucial to put in place so that every ship is as safe as any any other ship. So it, it's it's uh, and I, and I really don't think it's a matter of if ammonia can be made safe, it's just a matter of finding out what is required to make it safe. And then when you know those requirements, you can say, okay, then the ship will cost X percent more, 
and then you will figure out okay in these sectors it will make sense because that if, if ammonia for some reason is let's say slightly lower cost than something else if uh, if the ship is 10 times more expensive it, it won't happen but if the ship is a little bit more expensive then uh, these things will uh, will find its way to the market so so safety first and then uh, and then basically that that kind of dictates the, the rest of the things that needs to happen of course technology needs to function but also procedures like you know bunkering what kind of procedures need to be put in place for that uh, you know terminals for ammonia storage and harbors uh, it's it's already there in, in in some scale now but obviously if it becomes a fuel the ammonia infrastructure needs to be scaled up significantly and then things like you know training of crew and so forth and and then basically legislation as well to be put in place legislation is also a key driver here because you need to know the rules before you can produce something that fulfills it uh, a final technical question in terms of you you mentioned that that ammonia engines are likely to or may need some after treatments in in the form of scr for nox is there anything else to consider in terms of the after treatments or the environmental performance of these engines that we need to to know about i think that the key thing is uh, is to make sure that uh, an ammonia vessel would not pollute i mean it, it, it cannot pollute more with nox than is allowed so it has to be as clean as anything else and we cannot have a secondary emissions problems coming out of uh, solving a co2 problem and that's also why it's important to to talk about things like like laughing gas n2o which is getting now significant attention in the on-road sector. Uh, limits are coming. Also, when we did projects in uh, in Copenhagen and London, there were limits on laughing gas uh, being created in the SCR catalyst. I don't think we will see a risk of creating a C sorry of SCR generation of laughing gas in these systems because we will not have a lot of NO2. There is not a diesel oxidation catalyst in these big maritime systems, so the NO to NO2 ratio will be different. Uh, but of course, in the combustion process, there's a risk of creating a certain level of N2O. And given it's 300x times, uh, sorry, 300 times uh, CO2 gas, greenhouse gas equivalent, it's important to deal with that. But but generally speaking here, and there's also an activity that will be running in the sensor, we need to have focus on all the required emissions control solutions to make sure that CO2 as well as anything else is kept under control. So, uh, so for NOx, for sure for the ammonia engine, for, for, for LNG ships and future biomethane uh, powered vessels, uh, you know, methane slip from the engine is crucial. So, you know, you have low high pressure engines and they don't perform equally well. And, uh, and methane slip catalyst is also something that can be uh, required to be put on board vessels. Uh, so there is significant room for after treatment on, uh, on, the, on the ships. Obviously, if it's a fuel cell, that, that challenge kind of goes away. Mm. Let's move across to to some of the challenges to do with with um, the ammonia itself and, and producing and and um, sh and moving around this uh, this future fuel this green ammonia. For further listeners who don't who don't know or haven't been involved in this in this new initiative, green ammonia is basically produced from renewable power, solar or wind or other renewable power, which is then used to uh, in an in an electrolyzer to produce hydrogen. That hydrogen is then uh, converted to ammonia in the Haber Bosch process. So, uh, to me, the question I have is, where do you expect green ammonia to be to be produced globally, uh, given the, the distribution of of um, renewable energy and in particular the cost side how, how is that evolving so far we, we don't have large-scale green ammonia production yet but do you think we're going to see cost-effective green ammonia production uh, from key 
clusters or production hubs uh, around the world? Yeah, I think right now a lot of uh, a lot of initiatives are being discussed, and some of them are also being announced. If you if you search for let's say the biggest giga projects announced uh, in the world right now, you'll quickly hit on uh, on something where you will, for instance, see the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, uh, where CWP Renewables and Intercontinental Energy uh, are teaming up to do uh, you know really big projects. And and I think it's it's a good example to mention uh, because of its 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 scale and some numbers. You know it's. It's a it's it's multi-billion it's two-digit billion uh, dollar investment in uh, in facilities targeting to have in excess of 20 gigawatt solar wind uh, with a target of having a production capacity of of, uh, of of around 10 million tons of ammonia per year uh, and then exporting that uh, as as, a, as an energy vector basically uh, to, to to areas like you know Japan or Singapore or whatever and and it's 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 one good example uh, there. Are, these 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 projects will pop up where there is right now the most attractive combination of uh, of let's say solar wind where you can end up having a very good utilization factor or capacity utilization on your on your equipment afterwards so it's important that you find an area where there is a, you know you can you can basically run your electrolyzers and your and your or your e-fuel plant you can run that uh, with with high utilization so that the capex is being utilized as much as possible. So Australia, uh, you know, Morocco is often mentioned, uh, Chile, uh, Middle East. So so these areas where you would have the best uh, offering of uh, setting up renewable energy production because the cost of electricity is in many cases perhaps 50% of the final product. And uh, so the levelized cost of electricity is a main driver of the final price. And then, of course, the technologies you choose for converting them into a fuel and converting that fuel into power on the vessel, those technology choices will also impact the final price for the operating on, of, of, the, of the ship. But anyway, these, these are some of the initiatives that are coming. Uh, and, uh, and I think if you, these big island projects like, uh, again, in, in Australia, the, I think one of the reasons why they're looking into ammonia is that it takes away the requirement to find a renewable carbon source to make a carbon-based energy carrier, which obviously can also be done if you have biogenic CO2, you can do capture from point source and you can create methanol or something comparable, right? So it's 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 about what kind of renewable electricity do you have available and what kind of feedstocks nearby can support the molecules that you want to make. Yeah, so, so the, the geographic kind of distribution of zero carbon fuels will depend on where all these resources lie. So the renewable renewable energy, hot windy deserts, if you like, um, compared to possible CO2 feedstocks, all those things will feature. Uh, I wanted to ask you about um, some uh, an interim solution that some people are discussing, which is different blue technologies. Uh, you know, there's blue hydrogen. Uh, in particular, I wanted to ask you about blue ammonia, which is which is a form of ammonia production based on fossil fuels, but where there's some measure of carbon capture and storage or some mitigation. Do you think that that kind of uh, kind of technology, that kind of interim step, is is going going to have a role? Do you think it's an important thing to be doing to be thinking about developing also blue ammonia production alongside future green ammonia production? Yeah, it's, I think it's very important to to analyze that to the great level of detail to understand what is required to be able to make that a feasible transition option because the benefit of that is that it, it's it's decoupled from the current growth of renewable power production uh, right now it's it's about 200 gigawatts of new green electricity being installed per year 
and and if we need more than that, we need maybe around 1,500 to 2,000 for shipping. So it's it's all the green electricity capacity in the world for 10 years to to kind of uh, do the job for shipping, uh, and and a lot of other stuff needs to happen. So so the blue fuels can create a uh, an important transition where uh, where the technologies on sea starts to have a product that they can buy. And then later they can transfer from blue to green. The uh, the, the value of doing that uh, is also a little bit linked to fundamental, uh, let's say, physics or, or you know thermodynamics. Because if you can capture the concentrated CO2, and and you can, if if you capture the concentrated CO2 that comes as side streams from an ammonia plant, then it's 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 much more effective and efficient to capture that CO2 and store it than if you have to do direct air capture after you would have burned that natural gas. On a ship, so so it's it's kind of you you can one could argue that that blue ammonia is in some way a natural and an indirect LNG solution, but it just doesn't bring along the carbon with it, uh, and uh, and that cost benefit of holding back your carbon before it diluted into billions of cubic kilometers of air <laughs> at 410 ppm, that that entropy, you know, that disorder. Uh, that creation of this order for CO2, if you can avoid that, you have you at, at the source. You you it, that's really a benefit, and then uh, then that's a scale problem. So that that's so it's kind of getting scale early on a on a on a molecule with lower carbon footprint that could way, get its way to the market to help uh, getting more users out there driving the need for the green, the fully green. Mm-hmm. So it does sound like there's a role for 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 anything that can get us. Uh, to where we need to get to quicker, uh, because just avoiding any extra CO2 going into the, into the air, as you described. Yeah. Uh, Tui, let me ask you a question just as we wrap up. Uh, if I had to ask you, when do you think all of these things will, will, will start to fall into place in the sense of, uh, let's say, green ammonia production, zero, zero carbon ammonia, uh, the engines are in place. They're vessels, vessels uh, sailing on a commercial basis, taking goods around the world. Um, what what year do you predict we'll start seeing real zero carbon shipping in a commercial setting happen? Or are we talking one or two or three years away? Or are we talking 2030? It, it, this is, uh, I think, by by. By 2025, we'll start to see that that the S curve is getting some traction that's starting to take off a little bit. But obviously, there are 70,000 ships that needs to be dealt with. So uh, you know you have to start. I mean, it, it's so it's really about getting started, uh, and this will happen uh, already from the second half of this this decade. So the the takeoff you think will be probably later this decade in terms of. Yeah, the, the ship the ship will start. The uh, solutions will start this uh, in the second half of from 2025. Uh, things will start to roll out in obviously in small scale, and then you know it's it's basically this the ship operators, but also the the production capacity that needs to support it. They they need to move in the same pace, and if the confidence level can be, if the confidence level goes up both on the ship side and on the primary energy side. If they are willing to move together, that's how you can create uh, certainty that there will be offtake for the green fuels, uh, which then needs to hit the, hit the right scale. So, and, and that's the confidence where the sensor wants to be able to catalyze that it happens by making sure in a nice and transparent way that the options are well understood and what value that they bring. Yeah, I completely see. This is this is one of the biggest collaborations uh, I can imagine in terms of 
the groups and stakeholders who need to be involved in, and uh, and pushing in the right direction to get something of the scale uh, to, to happen. Uh, we've probably come to the end of our time today. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you and I really appreciate that. I mean, the range of topics we've discussed, I think uh, are we super interesting for our listeners. Any final thoughts you have in terms of, of the things we've discussed? Any concluding remarks? No, I'll just say it's it's uh, it's just really about you know there's a strong need to do something and uh, and we just really really want to be part of helping that goes uh, happens faster here from from us from at the center side as well. But it, it's really about it, it's eliminating CO2 and not creating a secondary problem. So so to leave this with an emissions control twist, then uh, let's make sure that we eliminate CO2 while we're not creating any other problems at the same time. Yeah, fantastic. I think it's 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 exciting for uh, especially for for you know young young people, our kids to to be able to spot and identify uh, the kind of thing that that's happening in shipping. It's happening in other sectors as well, where we're seeing a real a real move towards uh, a long term solution rather than just some kind of um, you know some kind of sticking plaster, which is is only going to get us part of the way, but not really solve the problem. So good luck, to, good luck in um, in in this whole endeavour uh, to you and everyone at the, everyone at the centre, and we'll, we'll be following it really closely. I know at Argus we uh, we're very involved in in the whole thing, uh, not just from green ammonia, but from the methanol side. So it's going to be a journey, and I'm sure we'll be talking again many times. Um, so Tui, thanks very much for for everything you've contributed today yeah thanks tim thanks josh was uh, was a pleasure yeah i mean uh, I've, I've sat back here and listened and absorbed a lot today and i hope our listeners have really enjoyed it as much as i as we have um i have been quiet today because of the internet thank you internet for being uh, <laughs> so um accommodating um but it's been really it's, it just reminds me of, of the good old days i think it's been a, it's been a few years since we've had you on stage Tui. uh at a conference, I can't remember the last one or where it was. Can you remember the last conference or which we gave a lot of speeches? Uh, China or China, China, Korea, probably. Yeah, yeah. US. Uh, I think US. Uh, the fall of uh, seventeen, maybe. Indeed, indeed. But no, we definitely need to get you back, and I'm sure as 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 we have you on the podcast today, the way things are going and the number of announcements going around globally. I think it won't be too long till we have you back on stage in a marine track or a marine session talking about, uh, you know, uh, um, decarbonizing the industry and, and what you're doing to, to achieve that. But I think the industry is in a very good place to have people like you on board spearheading the research. So um, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have you on again and we can have a catch up, maybe an update in, in, in a year or so. And, and see how things are going if that's okay um absolutely but to everybody listening thanks thanks for listening today it's good it easily gone on and on for two hours easily um and so uh, thanks for sticking with us on this one it, it certainly was required and uh if there's any questions feel free to you know connect with chewy on linkedin or send us an email we definitely pass on those messages um but again uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow, depending on how you listen to us today. If it's Spotify, Apple Music, they are available for you for your convenience. Um, but definitely keep keep us informed. Let us know what you want to hear, who you want to hear from, while we best aim to help you and your daily day-to-day activities. Awesome. Thanks very much, all. Have a day. Have a great day, and enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks. <laughs>